If you do have Bibles, uh, go ahead and make your way to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 14 is where we're going to be this morning. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that I mentioned a second ago, uh, page 10 is where you will find that. And so if you're using another Bible, it's uh, very close to the beginning, whatever page number that might be. I was thinking a lot this week um, about Gideon and Korah, and then Blakely Schuler last week, and Peter Julius a couple weeks before that, and then Noah and June and Ivy and Emma and Bennett and Charlie and Callan, and all of these kids that have been born here to families in this church this, this year, not to mention all the kids that have been born to families in this church over the last five years. Thinking about that this week, rejoicing in the gift that that is, and also feeling, I think, a healthy weight of responsibility. Uh, what, are we, what are we to do as a community, and, and who are we to be as a community to care for the next generation well? One of the greatest gifts that we can give, not only to our kids, but really to one another, is to really clearly differentiate between the gospel of Jesus Christ and moralism. Christianity gets confused all the time in our culture, particularly in the West, particularly in America. Christianity is not primarily about our morality. It's not primarily about what we do at all. It's first and foremost about what has been done for us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're, we're certainly called then to live upright and moral lives in response to that. But what can happen, especially when we consider accounts from the Old Testament as we are doing in this series looking at the life of Abraham, is that we read about these forefathers of our faith and we try to emulate their good examples and we try to avoid the bad examples. And that can be really the end of it. Do what's right, emulate what's good, avoid what's bad. That's actually a, a surefire way to become moralists and to make our kids into moralists, to teach people to be a good person, don't be a bad person. It, and actually, if, if that's what we're aiming for, then we don't need Scripture for that. And, and if that's the way that we read Scripture, it actually makes Scripture no different than any other story, than any other historical record, really than even any other goofus and gallant cartoon if you're familiar with those, right? If that's what we are looking for when we come to the Word of God, if that's what we come for when we look for when we come to the Bible, we might as well trade in our Bibles for Highlights Magazine and just use that instead. But in reality, Scripture is about the God of our salvation. It's about His creation. It's about His work in the world, and it's about He, through Jesus Christ, making all things new. So as a parent of young kids myself, I am increasingly, ever increasingly grateful for resources that are out there like Sally Lloyd-Jones, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Anybody familiar with the Jesus Storybook Bible? What Sally Lloyd-Jones does so well in that is show how all of Scripture points to Jesus. So if you've never heard of that resource before, if you've never read it yourself, my bet is that if you pick up a copy, it won't just benefit the kids that you know in your life, your own kids or grandkids or nieces and nephews, you'll actually benefit from, from it a lot yourselves. Because what it will do is it will begin to help you break out of a moralistic reading, a moralistic understanding of the Old Testament especially. The tagline of that book is, Every story whispers his name. Every story whispers his name. In other words, everything in Scripture points to Jesus Christ. And, and Sally Lloyd-Jones didn't just 
make that up on her own as a cool, catchy tagline. She gets that from Luke 24, where Jesus, after his resurrection, is walking on the road to Emmaus with two disciples. They don't even recognize him yet, but it says to them that he opens up the scriptures and he reveals, he interprets how all of those scriptures point to himself. So every story whispers his name. Some stories, like the one we're in in Genesis chapter 14 today, do much more than just whisper it. So I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. Genesis chapter 14, I'm going to pick it up in verse 8 and read through the end of the chapter. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Kurt. Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariak, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of them fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner. These were allies of Abraham. When, Abraham when, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit of them as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with all his possessions, and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we wish to see Jesus. And so by your Spirit's power, Give us eyes to see his glory this morning. It is through Christ that we pray. Amen. We'll spend our time this morning considering two key figures in this narrative. There's Abraham, the warrior redeemer, and there's Melchizedek, the king priest. Abraham, the warrior redeemer, and Melchizedek, the king priest. So first, let's talk about Abraham, the warrior redeemer. We pick up the story here at this battle of four kings against five. We skipped over those first seven verses. I figured you'd have more than enough opportunity to hear me butcher the names of people and places. In those first seven verses, what we learn 
is that these five kings, including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they'd been subject to this eastern king named Keterlaomer, king of Elam, which is in modern-day Iran. They'd been subject to him for, for 12 years. In the 13th year, they have enough of that. They rebel against him. And so Keterlaomer rounds up three of his allies, one from modern-day Iraq and two from what is most likely modern-day Turkey, and those four kings and their armies invade. Despite having home field advantage, the coalition of five kings are defeated, and their people and their provisions of Sodom and Gomorrah are taken away as the spoils of, of that war. That includes, we find out, Abraham's nephew, Lot, and includes his family and his servants. It includes all of his possessions, which were very substantial. We saw last week in Genesis 13, Abraham and Lot had to divide and go their separate ways because they each had such substantial possessions. What we've learned then in Genesis 14 is that though Lot started by dwelling in tents in the Jordan Valley, he's now progressed to living in the city of Sodom itself. And so the lack of wisdom in his decision-making process is continuing to progress, and that becomes more and more evident as his fate now gets tied up in the fate of the city of Sodom and all of its inhabitants. So someone escapes and runs to tell Abraham, and Abraham here responds exactly the way you would hope someone known as a hero of faith would respond. Without hesitation, without delay, he straps on his sword, and he rounds up his allies, and he rallies 318 of the male servants born in his house. What that means is these are the best and most faithful and reliable servants that are in Abraham's house. And he goes after Lot. You know those scenes in Lord of the Rings, whether you're a fan of the book or the movies or both, where uh, the hobbits Merry and Pippin are kidnapped, and then where Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli set out running across Middle-earth, and it's like all these gorgeous landscapes of New Zealand that they show in the movie version of that. It would not surprise me at all if Tolkien got his inspiration for that pursuit from Genesis chapter 14. Abraham pursues these enemy kings to the northernmost part of the Promised Land, divides his forces by night, defeats them, and then drives them all the way out of the Promised Land north of the city of Damascus. All of the detail, all those people and places and names, all the detail in this narrative up to this point only serves to show just how much of an accomplishment this is. Right? These are not pushover forces and pushover armies. These are capable armies who have won just one when outnumbered and when in a land far from their own. But Abraham and his allies, the servants of his house, they conquer the conquerors and drive them out of the land. So how opposite is this from the portrait of Abraham that we had when he was in Egypt back in Genesis chapter 12? In, in Egypt, Abraham is a passive exploiter. Here he's a courageous and decisive leader. There in, in Egypt, he, was, he sold out his wife for the sake of his own self-preservation. Here, at great risk to himself, he's loyal in defending his kinsmen. He doesn't owe Lot anything. He's already given Lot first choice over the best of the land. And it's Lot who has been foolish. But Abraham refuses to just leave him to the consequences of his folly. So he straps on his sword and he goes after him. More than just driving the enemy out of the land. Verse 16, Abraham brings Lot back. He brings him back. Lot and his family and his possessions 
and his servants. So Abraham is not just a fighter for the sake of fighting. Abraham is a warrior redeemer. He fights to reclaim what has been lost and what has been stolen. And if that stirs something up in you, it's because you and I are meant to experience exactly this kind of warrior redemption. And we're meant to experience that in two ways. First and foremost, like Lot, our folly leads to our own captivity and our own slavery, and we need to be redeemed. And then like Abraham, we have this longing deep within us and and a calling that we'll find later to participate in this kind of redemption, to be warrior redeemers ourselves. So every story whispers his name. Abraham points to our need for a greater warrior redeemer. One who will not abandon us to our folly and the consequences of it, but one who will strap on his sword and come after us and bring us back. And Jesus is that greater warrior redeemer. From the moment sin enters the world, through the folly of our forefathers, Adam and Eve, God pursues them. Where are you, he says to them in the garden as they're hiding. And God goes to war. He promises to crush the head of the serpent so that he might restore what sin has broken. When the fullness of time comes, God sends forth his son Jesus to be a warrior redeemer. As Hebrews chapter 2 says it, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And then through his death and resurrection, as Colossians chapter 2 says it, he disarms the rulers and the authorities and puts them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. A lot of you are familiar with with Jesus' life, the narrative of the Gospels. A lot of you have spent time in churches. During his life and ministry, we see so much of Jesus' compassion and his meekness, and rightfully so. He is compassionate and meek. Just don't let that obscure the violence of what Jesus is accomplishing on a cosmic scale. Jesus says to Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that's this offensive picture of the kingdom of God, storming the gates of hell, breaking down the gates in order to set the captives free, to bring back what has been lost and marred and stolen through sin. So Jesus is the warrior redeemer who comes after us when we are lost and brings us back. And then, experiencing that redemption, we are called to participate in and further the same. You and I here at Liberty Church, if you consider this to be your church, we are one local expression of what we said in the Apostles' Creed today, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. And it is against that church that the gates of hell will not stand. And so because you have been redeemed by the greater warrior redeemer, you become a warrior redeemer yourself. So go after that which has been ruined by sin. Take courageous and decisive action when you are called upon, when you have opportunity to do just what Abraham did in Genesis 14. Both men and women are called to be warrior redeemers. But being that it is Father's Day, let me speak especially to the men in the room for just a moment. Men, you especially are called to be active, frontline agents of God's redemption in the world. And that has nothing to do with 
machismo. That has nothing to do with fighting for the sake of fighting or bullying or using your strength in inappropriate ways. It has everything to do with being an assertive pursuer. It has everything to do with using the strength God has given you to seek out that which is lost and that which is broken and to bring it back. So don't get too comfortable, if this describes you, don't get too comfortable passing things off as someone else's responsibility. In the 1999 film, The Boondock Saints, the movie opens at a Catholic mass, and the priest says this incredibly memorable and compelling line. It's based on a quote that's often attributed to Edmund Burke. But the priest in the, in the movie says this, We all fear evil men, but there is another kind of evil that we must fear most, and that is the indifference of good men. Is this Abraham's problem when it comes to him in Genesis 14? Right? He, he's already been more than generous to Lot. Lot's been foolish the easy, the understandable thing is to let him suffer the consequences of his own folly. But that is not the way of the man of faith. That is not the way of the warrior redeemer. Men of faith are men of courageous and decisive action. So when your neighbors find themselves in need, when your kid's school needs help, when your church needs help, which is a shameless plug, when... When there are organizations that in our region and community that serve the poor and the homeless and other vulnerable and marginalized people, rather than always and automatically passing on those things and saying, well, that's someone else's responsibility, ask yourself this, what is the cost of my indifference? What's the cost of my indifference? More specifically, what is sin trying to hold captive here? What is evil trying to ruin and corrupt and mar in God's good creation? And as an agent of God's redemption, how can I pursue what has been lost and redeem it and bring it back? James chapter 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So take responsibility in the face of a hundred reasons not to. And go after that which has been lost and fight to bring it back. You will fail and you will fall short. And I will fail and I will fall short. But all that will do is reinforce the reality that we ourselves have needed and do need and will forever need a greater warrior redeemer. And that we are only warrior redeemers because a greater one has brought us back. Second, let's talk about Melchizedek, the king priest. Verse 17, Abraham returns, and upon his return, he encounters two kings, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. Salem is almost certainly the settlement that would one day become the city of Jerusalem some years, some years later. And these two kings are juxtaposed by the, this stark contrast of their first words and their, their tone and their demeanor and response toward Abraham. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, he brings out bread and wine, brings out this royal banquet, this full meal. And though he hasn't been involved anywhere in the story up to this point, he appears on the scene for the first time with gifts. And his first words are words of blessing. Blessed be Abram by God most high. The king of Sodom, on the other hand, has been involved in this story. He's part of that coalition of five kings who rebelled and who were defeated, and so he then fled. 
So he has far more reason to be grateful. He has far more reason to bless Abraham. It's because of Abraham that he has the prospect now in front of him of getting his people and all of his stuff back from captivity. And yet, what are the first words out of the mouth of the king of Sodom? Give me. Give me. He's ungrateful. And he's presumptive. Right? It's the victor, not the defeated king who has the right to decide what happens with the people and the stuff that he has recovered. The last that we heard from the king of Sodom, he was either falling into a tar pit or he was fleeing into the mountains. So he has no right to demand anything in this setting. A couple of things are happening through this contrast. For one, it becomes one of the first instances that play out the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. So back at the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, God says he will bless those who bless Abraham, but him who dishonors Abraham, God will curse. So there's something that's really foreboding in light of Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, about the king of Sodom's lack of of gratitude and his presumption here. And we know, because Moses doesn't believe in spoiler alerts, we already know that Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be cursed by God. They're going to be destroyed. But on the other hand... Melchizedek here blesses Abraham, and he is blessed in turn with a tenth of all that has been recovered. Second, and significantly, we are given here our first glimpse in Scripture of a priest. It's our first time we ever encounter a priest in all of Scripture. Melchizedek is not just the king of Salem. He is also, as it says, priest of God Most High. What what is a priest? A priest is someone who connects the people to God and who connects God to the people. It's someone who mediates the blessing of God. Melchizedek's first words, actually Melchizedek's only words in all of Scripture are words of blessing. He blesses Abram and then he blesses God. This is such a small part of the narrative of Abraham's life that it might be really easy for us to pass over. But you've got to remember who Abraham is. He's the one who God has just said not that long ago, God is going to bless all the families of the earth through him. He's the chosen one to mediate the blessings of God to all the families of the earth. In fact, his descendants, the nation of Israel, they are going to be called a kingdom of priests because it's through them that the world will be connected to God and God to the world. And yet, Abraham needs his own priest. And yet, There is one greater than Abraham already in this land, a priest of God most high, one who is able to mediate God's blessing even to Abraham, the one who will bless all families of the earth. Every story whispers his name. Melchizedek points to our need for a greater king priest. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. And His city, Salem, the name of of his city means peace. So we need a king who is somehow, in some way, both simultaneously the king of righteousness and the king of peace. We also need a priest who is not tainted by the sin of humanity and the sin of the world. By leaving out his genealogy, by, by leaving out anything that happens to Melchizedek throughout the rest of his life, he becomes this larger than life figure, even in these three verses. A priest of God but one who is a priest outside the priesthood of Levi and Aaron and all of Aaron's sons, the priesthood that Moses writes a ton about in the books that follow. 
every Israelite reading Genesis, every Israelite reading the Torah, the first five books of Scripture, would be painfully aware of how tainted their own priesthood was. These are not perfect mediators. These are corruptible, fallen mediators of God's love and God's blessing. Even the most faithful of the priesthood are far from perfect. If all we had were, was the book of Genesis, Melchizedek would probably be this, this curious and obscure character. As quickly and mysteriously as he appears, he's gone. But this is hardly the last reference to Melchizedek in Scripture. And this seemingly minor character who takes up three verses in the narrative of Abraham's life becomes a pivotal name in the redemption of God. Some years later, King David writes Psalm 110. It's a psalm that's then used as a coronation liturgy for the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. And we read in Psalm 110 that God's ideal king is not only a king who rules, it's also a priest. And it says in Psalm 110, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. We know from from history, we know from Scripture, the kings of Israel and Judah, they come up woefully short of God's ideal. And so we see in this that not only do we have a need for a better king in the line of David, we have a need for a better priest in the order of Melchizedek. And we find the fulfillment of both of those things in Jesus Christ. He's the greater king-priest. We recognize Jesus as God's greater king because of passages like Psalm 110. No psalm is actually quoted more than Psalm 110 in the New Testament, attributing these things to Jesus. And we recognize Jesus as our great high priest, as we sang about, as we heard about this morning, because of primarily what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 4, Hebrews 7, Hebrews 8. Guess whose name jumps off the page in both of those texts after you read Genesis 14? Melchizedek. He's in all of those passages. King of righteousness, king of peace. And it is at the cross where righteousness and peace kiss each other, where the perfect justice of God and the perfect mercy of God join together and accomplish our salvation. So Jesus is a king on the basis of his descent. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. But he's a priest, as the author of Hebrews puts it, not by descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. He lives again, ever to live, ever to intercede for us before the throne of God. That is what it means that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Before there ever was a law, before there ever was a priesthood to administer and to mediate that law, there was a priest of God in the land who mediated the blessings of God. Jesus is a priest in that order. In 1 Peter, the church is called a kingdom of priests. Those promises that apply to Abraham's family are applied to the church. So we are those through Christ who become mediators of God's blessing in the world. And what I would say to you men and women this morning, we need to own that as a church. And we need to own that for most of us more than we often do and more than we do currently. Most of us need to become less comfortable with a faith that is largely private and step into a faith that is more priestly seeking the thriving of the place that God has put us, seeking to bless others with the blessings of God himself, seeking to connect the people of the Harrisburg region to God and God to the people. And as a first step in that, here's what I would call us to today. Become a perpetual student of this question. Where is God already at work in the world around you? 
Where is God already at work in the world around you? When you read Genesis, it can seem like the only place that God is at work is through Abraham. And the narrative's focused on him. It makes sense. It looks like God's not present anywhere except through what he's doing through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and that family. And then out of nowhere in Genesis 14, Melchizedek shows up, priest of God most high, one who is greater than Abraham, able to bless Abraham. He's in a superior place where he can bless Abraham. And that's an important illustration. It's an important reminder that God is always at work in a place long before you and I show up. God was at work in the promised land before Abraham showed up there. And likewise, God has been at work here in this place long before you and I showed up, long before Liberty Church in this area was even a thought in someone's mind. So let's be students of the work of God in the Harrisburg region. In Harrisburg, in Camp Hill, in Mechanicsburg, in Middletown, in New Cumberland, in Hummelstown, all these boroughs and towns where God has planted us. Let's be students of what God is doing and where God is at work in those places. To do that will change the way we perceive our lives. And it will change the way that we perceive this church. No longer will we be only about caring for one another and our needs. We will be this kingdom of priests meant to represent God and connect people to God and God to people in this region. At the same time, remembering this, perceiving where God is at work, will help us definitively remember that we are not the saviors of the world. When we try to be the saviors of the world, we become fearful, we become arrogant, we become angsty, or we could become all three of those things at the same time. But if God is already at work, and if Jesus is the Savior of the world, then our role is to recognize that work of God and to join him in the mission that he is already accomplishing. And we'll do that with courage, and we'll do that with urgency, but the angst and the fear and the arrogance will melt away as we remember our own need for a king priest to connect us to God. So there is much to emulate in Genesis chapter 14. There's also much to avoid. But as we read this account, may we be warrior redeemers who, like Abraham, seek out what sin has broken and bring it back. And may we be a priestly kingdom who, like Melchizedek, bless in the name of God Most High. But as we do that, may we never forget we need a greater warrior redeemer than Abraham and we need a greater king priest than Melchizedek. For we are no moralists, but we are people who exalt the warrior redeemer and the king priest, Jesus Christ. So through us, may he be known and looked upon and believed on in the world. Amen.